love you, but I'm so glad you're here, and hope you brought your Bible. We try to put the verses up on the the screen for you and uh, supported verses, but it's always good to uh, have a pen with you and underline things. Someone said that a short pencil is better than a long memory, and my my favorite Bible that I have is one that I don't use anymore. And it's a Bible that is uh, uh, fallen, not falling, but falling apart. I'm sure you've heard this said, but uh, uh, a Bible that is falling apart, someone that owns a Bible that is falling apart belongs to someone that is not. And uh, the reason that is a special Bible is I've, I had it for decades and I, I used it and listened to sermons and I wasn't a pastor then, and so I wrote down so many notes in that. And now um, I have several Bibles. I have a, a this is a primary Bible I use. It's it's kind of funny. If you ever see it, it has a little heart up here. One of my granddaughters put that. I don't have the I don't have the heart to take the heart off. Uh, but uh, it's a large print Bible, so I graduated up to the large print. But I wanted to uh, leave something to my kids, and so I uh, go through uh, a number of Bibles and mark in them and write them so that they can uh, have something uh, from, from their dad. I have my, my mom's Bible, my dad's Bible, and a couple of my father's Bibles, and those are very, very special to me. I want you to turn to John chapter 19 this morning. And we'll look there in just a moment in John chapter 19. Again, thank you for coming. Just in recent uh, weeks and months, because of uh, various things, I, I've been thinking a lot of that uh, 1975, the end of July through the 1st of uh, August, August the 1st, July the 28th through August the 1st, right before I went into my senior year of high school, uh, the youth ministry I was in, we went to a, a college uh, in North Carolina, Banner Elk, North Carolina, Lee's McRae College. We went there for a Bible camp. It was so good. There were hundreds and hundreds, about uh, seven or eight hundred teenagers that were there and workers and so forth from various churches all, all over the southeast and even up in Pennsylvania that had come down to to just hear hear the word of God and to be challenged. A very gifted and a good man of God led that week. Uh, 23 years old. Uh, boy, I, I cannot hardly fathom that. But very mature for his age and uh, walking with the Lord. And he led us that week and um, just preached from his heart. It was so good. And on Tuesday evening, on July the 29th, I fully surrendered my life, I was a, a good kid, what some people would say, but there was, there was confusion in my life. There was unsettledness. There was a, a rebellion in terms of just not wanting to do what God wanted me to do. It was not overt. Uh, I just wanted to do what I wanted to do, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I had been saved when I was nine years old, and here I was... I just turned 17 years old, 
really not knowing uh, what to do. And so that night, I, uh, I wanted to the night before, wrestling with God, and then Tuesday morning, I wanted to, tried to hold out. And boy, that night, Tuesday night, I, I just came forward, and I've told you the story before. And on this side of the pulpit, as I looked down, I, I yielded everything I had to Jesus. One of the special parts about that week was our whole family went. Uh, my brother, he had just started the youth ministry. He was in the seventh grade. Uh, my sister was two years behind me. My father drove the bus, and my mom came as a chaperone and as a worker. And occasionally, every couple of years, I go back uh, to Google Earth, and then I'll go back to uh, look up the college and they have pictures of the inside. I know I'm a little different, but it keeps my heart tender towards the Lord. And go inside the pictures of that auditorium. And I could take you, if, if we were to drive to that auditorium on the top of that hill, it's on the top of a mountain, at least McCray College, still there in Banner Elk, North Carolina, to the very place not only where I surrendered uh, to the Lord in that auditorium, uh, but when I got up off of my knees and I spent some time there, my face was wet with tears. But the first place that I went to is I went back to the middle section just right over here. And I went back to where my mom and dad were standing together. And I'm sure that uh, they were relieved somewhat. Uh, but I, I wasn't uh, into drugs. I, I, I didn't curse and swear. It wasn't like that. But there was just c confusion and, and not knowing what I was supposed to do, where I was supposed to go, and, and, and just a lot of trouble in my life. And, uh, and just put my arms around their necks and, and hugged them and loved them. We all wept together as a family. And uh, maybe it's just my heart has been tender with the death of my sister, thinking about my whole family with my mom and dad, she being in heaven with them. Well, I got to thinking about how that when, uh, when my oldest boy, Jeremiah, was born, and then the rest of my kids came along, how that I really didn't understand. It's not the first time I thought about this. It's kind of put a fresh coat of paint on it in recent days. Uh, I, I didn't understand uh, how much my parents loved me, and I still don't. I, I have a, a better understanding because of how much that I love my kids and how much you sacrifice, how much you invest for them. And uh, I go back and, and look at that, knowing the burden that they carried. I was the oldest uh, child, but the burden that they carried for me. The weight, the weight that they had for me, and the prayers, the prayers that my mom and dad had for me, and to see to see their boy uh, give his life to the Lord, and then to come up to them and and uh, hug them and love them and thank them and apologize to them and just say I'm sorry, I'm just sorry. And Paul alluded to, to some of these things when he wrote to the Corinthians who were his spiritual children. 
when he started this church, he, God used him to, to be their spiritual parents of sorts. In 2 Corinthians 12, there's a very tender passage. It's up on the screen for you. We'll look in John 19 in a moment. And he said, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you. And basically, he had written uh, 1 Corinthians, and then he had written a second letter that we do not have that's not uh, in the Word of God, what we call the canon uh, of Scripture, that is, the Scriptures that we have. And so he said, I'm writing this third letter to you. And he says, I will not be burdensome to you. Now, what that means is this. He said, now, I, I, I'm not asking anything of you. I don't want your money. In fact, when he came there, he was a tent maker. He worked and he didn't take any money from them. Uh, at other churches, people accused him of taking things, and he always came as a servant. He said, I will not be burdensome to you. And watch this. He said, I seek not yours, but you. He said, I'm not interested in what yours and what you have. I'm not interested in yours, your possessions, your stuff. I'm interested in you. I love you. I don't care about your stuff. I don't care about your money. I love you. And then he uses this analogy of a parent and the children. This is so tender. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents. And remember, he's talking about spiritual parenting, but he uses a parallel of literal parenting. But the parents for the children, they lay up. They sacrifice. They give. The parents always give more. They always love more. And notice this, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Now pay attention to these phrases. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Now, the word spend there means to incur a cost, almost like a charge account that I'm going to pay off or to take my billfold out and just to to give you money. I, I, I will spend for you. I, I will take the cost for you. But then he adds something to it. He, he could have just put left the next phrase out. And I will very gladly spend and be spent. And that means to be wholly expended. And, and, and the word means this. It means to be exhausted. Not physically, but financially. It means I, I, I and, and parents understand this. I, I'm going to go out on thin ice here. But I hear talk of, well, we, we, we just didn't have more children because we wanted to do things. Well, if you're the third child, aren't you glad your parents didn't say that after the second child? I, I will very glad spend for you and even be spent. Even be spent. And the words, look at it, very gladly mean with great pleasure. Most very gladly, it conveys an abundance of joy. I'm not just saying this. He said this, and you parents know this. 
The joy you get on Christmas is not what you give, it's what you've given. You don't have to get anything. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more, and here's the reality though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. I remember thinking one time about how that, uh, how immature it is for us to, to try to barter with people and want to, to get something from people. Well, I, I want to be loved too. Did you know that one of, you know you're becoming godly? And the word godly is, is an abbreviation of the form godlike. You're becoming like God. When you, when you get to this place here that Paul has written in 2 Corinthians 12, 15. I want to ask you a question. Who loves God like God loves them? Well, nobody. Who gives to God like God gives to them? Nobody. And it's an immature parent that says, well... I give and my my kids don't give back to me in the same manner where they're not supposed to. Now they ought to try. But your kids are never going to love you the same way that you have loved them. Now there will come a time when they're going to get it. But they're going to get it through their own kids. And you just kind of need to resign that fact and just realize that, okay, this is kind of the cycle of life. And, and this is how God feels all the time. And the privilege is not in the receiving, but it's in the giving. And the receiving that you get is in the heart of God. That God loves me. And the same Spirit of God lives in me that is a giving God and a content God to give and not to receive. I, I feel like I'm speaking in an unknown tongue today. And it's not in an area of intelligence, but it's 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 on spiritual maturity. I'm hoping you're getting this. But I want to I want to come back to the intent of the message. I believe that that children ought to try, you teenagers and college kids and you young marrieds, and, and even if you're not married, if you don't have children, and even if you do have, we ought to try. God knows I tried with my parents and, and tried to communicate that, but it was impossible for me to love my parents as much as they love me. It's impossible for my kids to love me to the same degree that I love them. And I believe that my love for my parents can be understood and appreciated as I mature and I discover the meaning of sacrifice for my own children. Now here's a hinge point at the message in the introduction. I want you to get this. We, we discover a person's worth. I said all that to say this. We discover a person's worth by their work and their character. And when we think about who they are and what they have done, their motives and their heart, and the more we know 
of what they've done for us and what they think about us, the more appreciative we are for them. We're grateful for them. And and one of the geniuses of the Bible is its simplicity. Now listen, God is simple, but he's not simplistic. God is profound. You will never get inside Romans eleven thirty three through 36. You will never get inside the mind of God and totally understand him. That's why we worship him. But he is simple. And God has given us means whereby that we can grow in our love for God. And I've taught you this before, but, but as I introduce the message today, I want to do this again today. I've done it before, but I want to hit it again. You, you do not cultivate your love for God by thinking about your love for God. You know, I, I don't love the Lord as much as I want to, so let me think about loving God. I'm going to love God today. You, you don't love your parents more just because you think about your parents. Listen, you think about their work. Their sacrifice, you think about their heart. You, you get pictures in your mind of what they did for you and, 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 and how they served you and how they laid their life down for you. And, and your love for God is not a by, it is a byproduct, not of you trying to love God, but of you thinking about how much God loved you. And if you will think about how much God loved you, the end result of that is you'll love God. In your, pus- in your pursuit of God, the end result of that is your heart begins to grow where you want to serve Him. You don't have to serve Him. You want to serve Him. You love Him. And your heart begins to develop where, Lord, I love you. I love you for who you are. Just like you love your parents. And you love anybody. Someone said one time, it helped me, that meditation is love's nourishment. You don't just grow in love by thinking about love. You you grow in love by thinking about the object, about the person, about the sacrifice. Let me give you some scriptures. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, We love Him. Because he first loved us. We didn't pursue him. He pursued us. And that's why we love him. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation of the payment for our sins. And when you think about Calvary, which was a propitiatory act, where God saw Jesus Christ as a payment for our sins, that is what draws your heart to God and to Christ. And it helps you to love Him. It helps you to love His church. Christ loved the church and He gave Himself for it. He loved His people. Love His Word. I think sometimes our preaching focuses so much, well, you need to love the Bible, and you need to love this, and, and we're trying to love the object rather than the person. 
Luke chapter 7, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisee about a lady that, that loved him in her just pure, simple love. He said, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now this man didn't love much. He probably wasn't converted. She loved much. Now watch this. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. I remember reading that when I was younger, thinking, well, man, I, I never was a drug dealer. I, I can't love God as much. I'm going to have to have a, one of those dramatic testimonies. There's different types of sins. There's sins of the flesh. There's sins of the Spirit. And what he's saying here is that your, your love for God is attached to your awareness and perspective of how much you've been forgiven. And when you think about the forgiver, not the sin, but the forgiver, and the capacity and the deliverance, what He saved you from, the Bible says that it increases your love for Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, The love of Christ constraineth us. Constrain. Compound word. The word con means to surround. Con. Strain means pressure. Constrain. It means I'm surrounded by pressure. The love of Christ. Con. Surround. It presses me. It motivates me. It stirs me all around me. It doesn't say, watch, it doesn't say my love for Christ motivates me. No. No. It doesn't say that. It says the love of Christ pressures me, it stirs me, it surrounds me. When I think about who He is and what He has done for me, His love constrains me because we thus judge that if one, that's Him, died for all, then we're all dead. That means when He died, I died on the cross. It's positional truth. And that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live Unto themselves, a selfish life, but unto him which died for them and rose again. But what's going to stop you from being selfish is not putting on a three by five card on a mirror in the morning that says, Don't be selfish today. That's just pop psychology. That's just a reminder. What helps you is to realize the depth and the breadth of Calvary love and what He has done for you. And as we have gone through these these seven statements of Jesus on the cross, we're on the, the sixth statement. It's not just doctrinal. Don't be afraid of that word. It just means teaching. That word doctrine just means teaching. As, as we've surveyed this, this, this doctrine, this teaching of Christ... It's not so we can, oh, what did he say and why did he say it? There's more to it. The reason I've spent, this is the 27th message. I counted them. I remember when I first became the pastor, maybe my second year in ministry, I went through these seven statements and and I preached them. And then I went back and, and I, I 
I developed them from a fresh perspective. I didn't even look at my old notes. And my, my heart, my heart for this is that me and that you would 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 know him better. We would love him better. It's not so that we're we're just looking at the details and, and we can answer questions on a quiz and be better Bible students. We love him because he first loved us. It's so that when you walk out that door and you get in your car and you go in your home that you wouldn't just be a Christ follower, you would be a Christ lover because you're not going to follow Him if you do not love Him. And this, this sixth statement is the very heart of the gospel message. It's one of the most important statements in the history of mankind, truly. And it deals with our, our response, what we're going to do with it. Notice in John chapter 19 and verse 29. John nineteen twenty nine. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop, which was a, a little a stick, a branch, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, and by the way, he said this with a loud voice, It is finished. This is one, one word in the Greek language, in English, these three words, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is finished. These are words that, that give us hope, that give us peace. And many Christians, some of you, you're, you're plagued by doubt, you're plagued by, by fear, e- even even after you're saved, sometimes you say, I know that I'm saved. Some of you struggle with this. Listen, the work of Christ on your behalf, it's finished. I, I've never been to California, so I've never been to, to San Francisco. But when they were building the Golden Gate Bridge, I even some of you, I'm not going to have you respond, but I know you, you've been there. But I, I even went back and, and studied this a little bit this week. It's fascinating. Of the sacrifice, they had plaques and, and pictures. I saw some of the pictures of the men that gave their lives, that fell to their deaths. I even read that 98% of the people that tried to take their lives, or, or 98% of the people that jumped trying to commit suicide, die. 98 out of 100 because of the swift currents and their bodies are never found. The currents are that fast. If the fall doesn't kill them, it it takes them so swiftly out to the sea. And that's why they die. If not from the impact, they just cannot find their bodies. And so the work was progressing at a slow rate. The men were fearful. And so they built this huge net up under under the the bottom of it in, in the late 30s. Later on, the net was destroyed. That's an interesting thing. Nevertheless, you know what they found out when they put the net under there? That the work, listen, the work increased over 50%. They got 50% more work done because the, the men weren't as careful. Well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? I wonder how many of God's people, because of the, the plague of doubt, and uncertainty, 
are not working for God because of fear. They don't have peace. They don't have joy. They don't enjoy being a Christian. Oh, good friend, listen, it's finished. And forgiveness and assurance only come from the work of Jesus on the cross. It is not something you earn. It's a gift of God. Every person can enjoy this gift of assurance, this full forgiveness by trusting in Christ alone. This gift. Number one, our salvation. It is finished. It. What is it? Well, he's not talking about his life. He's not it. He's not talking about his life because he rose from the dead. He's not just talking about his suffering. Certainly it was over. When he says it, he's speaking about the payment. He's talking that he made to his father to satisfy the violation that sinners like you and me and every person that ever lived had broken God's law. And God's law and His justice demanded and His holiness demanded that the penalty, the wages of sin is death, that it be paid for. And Jesus paid that debt in full. And that's why it says it. That's what the it is. And he's speaking of his mission. It is finished. It was a cry of victory. He shouted. It wasn't resignation. Well, it's finished. Finally, all the suffering is over. No. He said, I crossed the finish line. It is finished. The debt is paid. Talks about our salvation. He talks about our standing. It is. Is. Present tense. The debt is still paid. Right now, it's still paid. Not just 2,000 years ago. It's still paid right now. It is finished right now. My permanent standing of grace is in effect right now. I have confidence that I'm going to heaven. I've actually talked to people when I share the gospel with them, and they'll say something like this. And it's indicated that they don't understand the gospel. They'll say, well, that's arrogant for you to say that, that you know that you're going to heaven. Well, that's arrogant. Oh, no, it's not at all. It's very humble. I'm not going to heaven at all based on anything I've done. It was a gift. If anything, it's arrogant to think that you're going because of something that you did. It is finished. It's present tense. Sometimes I'll talk to people and say, well, have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior? Are 100% sure that if you were to die that you were going to heaven? Uh, and, and, and they're confused. And, and, and the world, I'm telling you, the majority of people, 99% of the world is like this. Well, I, I don't think you can know that. That's not for sure. And they'll say something like this or they'll think something like this. You're going to have to wait to find out. And if they haven't expressed this way, this is what they think. We're going to have to wait and find out all the good things I've done. And God has a scale in heaven. And He's going to put all the times I helped old ladies across the street. And the times I did good deeds. And I'll pile up. And then there's another scale over here. And all the times I cussed. And all the times that I stole things. And I'm just hoping that, that this scale over here is going to be heavier. 
And it's based on works. It's based on good deeds. That's not what the Bible teaches. But listen, that's what your friends and your relatives and religious people and Baptist people. Good people don't go to heaven. Say people go to heaven. It is finished. My standing has nothing to do with that type of a scale. God obliterated the scale and he paid the payment and it's not on an installment payment. He paid the whole thing. So my standing with God is one of grace. There's a verse that I love. It's a simple verse. John six forty seven. The Lord Jesus said it. He said, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath, hath everlasting life. He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I'll never forget, about 1982, I was uh, not far from my home in Alexandria, Virginia, and a precious lady, and I'm sure she's in heaven now because she was older in years. Her name was Mrs. Brown, and I know that sounds like a common name, like Johnson or Smith. Or, uh, we're stuck, aren't we, man? People don't believe that's her name. But her name was Mrs. Brown, and... Uh, I I presented the gospel to her. Are you sure if you were to die right now, are you 100% sure you'll go to heaven? That's a good question. It's not the only question, but it's a good question. She said, no, I'm not. And I went and I presented the gospel to her. And then I said, have you ever, would you like to do this? She said, well, yes. And she hesitated. I said, Mrs. Brown, have you ever done this before? She said, yes, I have. I said, well, tell me about it. And she told me, she gave me a very clear-cut testimony about when she had trusted Christ as her Savior. I mean, it was as clear as my testimony. And based on what she, she was as saved as I was based on her testimony. And I said, well, I'm going to show you another verse. And I took her to John six forty seven. He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I said, well, are you trusting Christ right now? She said, well, yes, I am. I said, well, if you were to die right now, where would you go? She said, well, I don't know. I said, well, the Bible says he that believeth on me hath, hath, not will have, not did have, not present, not future, not past, but present, has right now everlasting life. When you trust Christ, you have not 10-year life, not 20-year life, everlasting life. You have life indwelling right now. When did you do that? And she told me. Did you mean it? Yes. I said, well, are you 100% sure you? She said, no. And I read the verse to her. He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Now, I'm going to tell you. Most people would say, i tell you what. Let's go ahead and pray again. Now, here's what you're doing is you're creating a work. We will give confidence in what you're doing. But here's what I said. I said, well, Ms. Brown, it's probably one of two things. Either you are doubting that when you prayed and you trusted Christ when you were a teenager, that you didn't mean it and you weren't sincere. Or number two, 
that God wasn't sincere when He wrote what He did here and other places in His promises. And I remember my, my buddy Jeff and I, as we watched her, it was like a light came on her face and she lit up and she got it. And she said, oh no, I, I believe, I, I meant it with all of my heart. And I know God means His promises. I read the verse again. He that believes on me has everlasting life. I said, Mrs. Brown, if you were to die right now, where would you go? She said, I would go to heaven. Because you know what? She was looking, She listen, she was looking for a feeling. Martin Luther wrote a little poem that said, Feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My promise is a word of God. None else is worth believing. Now listen, if you have godly desires and you love the Bible and you love church and, and you love Christ, you think the devil gave that to you? Do you know how that you're physically alive today? You have a pulse. You have a pulse. You can take your pulse. Do you have, do you have a spiritual pulse God gave that to you. There, there are evidences, there are spiritual evidences that you're a child of God. I'm not trying to talk you into it. I would not dare do that. But at some point, you're going to have to quit putting your weight on emotion. and Put it on fact. This is what God said. This is my standing. It's a standing of grace. It is finished. Present tense. Man, if I were to drop dead of a heart attack right now, I'm going to heaven, not because I'm good, but because He's good and He promised. It is finished. It is finished. I told you a couple of weeks ago, the word finished there is a word tetelestai. Tetelestai means it is finished, it stands finished, it always will be finished. Jesus, when He went about His work, His Father's business... He wasn't just concerned about accomplishing, listen, accomplishing God's work. He wanted to finish God's work. In John chapter 4 and verse 34, Jesus said, My meat, my nourishment, my life is to do, not just to do the will of Him that sent me, but to finish His work, to finish His work, His mission. And here at the end of his life, he said, it is finished. I don't want to just do his will. I do want to presently do it, but I want to finish it. And then the night before he was crucified, in what we call the Lord's intercessory prayer, in John chapter 17 and verse 4, Jesus said, I have glorified, he's praying to his Father, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. I finished it. Do you know what the very first words of Jesus were in the Bible? The first words he ever said, they're in Luke 2.49, when he told his parents. He said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist or know ye not that I must be about my father's business? Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? First words. Do you know what his next to his last words were? His last words were, 
where he yielded his spirit to his father. You know what the next to his last word? It is finished. His first words were, don't you know I must be about my father's business? His next, his last words were, it's finished. My father's business is finished. In John 17, 4, when he's praying there in the garden, he said, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He's talking about his work of training the twelve. In John 19, 30, he's talking about the work of redemption for our sins. Tetelestai. It's finished. It's completed. Now, the Greek language is not complex. It's difficult to learn. I had two years of it. It's difficult to learn. But it, it's called Koine Greek. It means common Greek. It was a common language of the people. And so the words, that's why sometimes I'll say this, this is what this word means. And the reason I give you that is to give you a better picture and understanding. So, so when you see it, oh, that's, how that, that's what that word means. A fuller understanding of it. And so archaeologists have gone and, and dug up documents and some, some pottery and so forth. And they see how these phrases were used. Tetelestai. It is finished. One word in Greek. Three words in English. Finished. It is completed. Finished. It stands finished. It always will be finished. Servants used it. Servants use it. When a master gave a servant an assignment and the servant was completed, the servant would come back to the master and everything had been completed. He looked at his master and he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. I did what you asked me to do. Servants used it. When Jesus came to this earth, listen to me, he came as a servant to accomplish his Father's will, which, to be, which was to be your Redeemer, to purchase you for the bride of Christ. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, the Bible says that Jesus made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant. And that, that's not just a technical robotic, that, that's the spirit of a servant. Made in the likeness of man and being in fashion as a man. He was God, but he was a man. Watch this, he humbled himself. Because it takes humility to be a servant, to, to, to lay aside your initiatives and, and, and the things that you want to accomplish. And he did that to, to fulfill his Father's will, to be beaten and crucified. And he became obedient because a servant obeys. Unto death, and notice the next word, even. Not just a death, not a death. Even the death of the cross. The word leader and leaders plural is used seven times in the Bible. Seven times. The word leadership is never used in the Bible. Now I'm not saying you don't talk about it. But it's only used, the word leader and its derivatives is used seven times. 
the word servant and its derivatives is used over 1,100 times. And the Lord Jesus Christ was the greatest leader that ever lived. But he, listen, he came as a servant. Joseph wanted to be a leader, but he was, he was not a leader until he learned to serve. And it took him 13 years to learn that. This word was used by servants. It was used of servants. And by the masters, when this assignment was completed, the servant came and he said, Tetelestai. And the Lord Jesus hung on the cross and he said, he said, Tetelestai to his father because the mission as a servant was 100% completed. The priest used it when the Jews brought their sacrifices to be examined. There could be no flaws, no physical flaws, no defects. And the priests usually, to be honest, they used Hebrew, sometimes Aramaic. And they would use something like, it is perfect. But the same, the, the analogous phrase would be, Tedlestai. It's finished. It's perfect. There's nothing to be added, nothing to be taken away from. And listen carefully. The priest used it and they said, Tetelestai, perfect, completed, it's finished. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for you, but he died for God. And when the father looked at his son, he declared the sacrifice perfect. And Jesus said, I come as the perfect sacrifice. When he became, when he came to offer himself on the first day of his public ministry, he was baptized. You know who showed up? The Father and the Spirit. One of the few verses in the Bible where the Trinity is given in, in one or two verses. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. And Jesus, there's his son. When he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove and lighting. Notice the phrase there, lighting. Gently. And a voice from heaven, this is the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom, watch this, I am well pleased. This is a seal of approval from the Godhead, from the Father, and from the Holy Spirit saying, He meets our approval for 30 years. He's perfect. During His life and in His trial before He was crucified, the enemies had to find people to lie about Him. But they couldn't. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 59, The chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses. They were false. They were liars. But they couldn't find anything. Pilate confessed to the innocence of Jesus in Luke chapter 23 and verse 4. Then said Pilate to the chief priest and to the people, I find no fault in this man, only the Lord Jesus Christ could atone and cover and pay 
for your sins. Anything else will be rejected. The baptistry is not sufficient. Confession to a priest is not sufficient. Joining the church is not sufficient. Good works is not sufficient. It's incomplete. The only one that matters is the approval of the Father. And the priest used that word when the sacrifice was perfect. Tetelestai. And Jesus presented himself and he said, It is finished. Tetelestai. I'm offering myself. And the Father declared that by his approval when he raised him from the dead. Artists used it. When painters and craftsmen would complete their work, they would stand back and, and they would look back with, with admiration and say, it's perfect. Everything is perfect. And they would say, it's completed, it's finished. Ted Lestai. When you read in the Old Testament of symbols and types and ceremonies and pictures and prophecies, if you didn't have the New Testament, they wouldn't make any sense. Because they all point to the work of Jesus Christ and the cross. Someone said that the, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And after Jesus was raised from the dead, there were some disciples, and they couldn't get all this figured out, and they were discouraged. They were walking down a pathway down on the Emmaus Road, and Jesus was raised from the dead, and he was walking with them. He said, what's wrong with you guys? Why are you so sad? And the Bible says in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, and and the Lord Jesus beginning at Moses and all the prophets, that means the whole Old Testament, He expounded, that word means to explain and interpret. Jesus expounded unto them, these men, and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Because it was, he fulfilled these pictures, these types. Everything in the Old Testament was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, for Christ is, look at this, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. He's the end of the law. The word end is the word telos. It means it's the completion, it's the fulfillment, it's a conclusion, the termination. I don't have to, I don't have to do work anymore to be Accepted of God because I never could because I'm a sinner. I get to do work now to serve God. The only thing I can do is believe. Christ fulfilled the law and Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. My acceptance, my standing, my security is in His grace. Some of you need to, you need to let go of this. And quit trying to please God by what you can do. My, my precious wife grew up in a very, in a, in a church that preached the grace of God for salvation, but preached, preached the law of God for Christian living. Oh, you're saved by grace, but everything else you had to live by, you had to live by law. I want you to understand something. That stuff bleeds over. 
And you're not just saved by grace. You live by grace. You serve by grace. And God has given us principles. He's given us commandments. But even in those commandments, I can't fulfill them without the grace of God. And so for 30 years of her life, she was in confusion. She prayed two or three prayers trying to please God. We would sit up all night long. I never rebuked her. She was in misery sometimes. She said, okay, I'm okay now. Okay, I'm, I'm okay now. Dr. Wyman Porter came here and he preached out of John chapter 8, stood where I'm standing right now. We went home and she began to talk to me about salvation. And I knew, I said, boy, she's still struggling with this. The next Sunday, on a Sunday night, she sat right back here and she walked right down that aisle and I met her right there. And I could see the torture in her face. And she had won many, 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 many people to Christ. And we knelt on a a church pew right over here. And I want you to listen carefully. I put my arm around her and I said, honey, you know what to do. I wasn't even going to lead her in prayer. I wasn't going to do anything. And she cried out for mercy and grace because for the first time, she understood grace. Grace is alien to us. We think, well, I have to do something. I got to do something. I got to do something. There are preachers that are lost. There's church members that are lost. Christ is the end of the law for our righteousness to to those that believe. This is our standing. God has accepted you and me, not because of what you do, but because of who you believe. Because He did it all. There's only two religions. You take all the religions in history. There's do and there's done. All the religions. You do this and boy, there's a mile wide. All the religions. The difference in Christianity is that. Religion is is about doing. Christianity is about done. It's already been done. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And my favorite synonym for, for faith is the word rest. Because if you grow up in the church sometimes, we, we assign our own definitions. And we even think faith is doing. And sometimes faith is doing. But in salvation it's not. It's resting. And I can't do anything. I just, Lord, I take that. I receive that. I rest upon that. Let me give you this last thought. Not only did artists use it, but merchants used it. Merchants used it. When you went to the merchant's area in town and you purchased an item, the merchants would give you a receipt, and on that receipt would be one statement. It would say, Tetelestai. Paid in full. Paid in full. And your sins have left you in arrears to God. You owe God something. And you're going to pay it because you violated His standard. You violated His law. 
The wages of sin is death, separation from God for eternity. A place called hell, you're going to pay for it. That's why Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. He paid the penalty. Nobody else could pay it. No church can pay it. No priest can pay it. No preacher can pay it. You can't, get, you can't wash the stain of sin and the baptistry off of you. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And that, that receipt that, he, that the merchants would give you that said, Tetelestai, the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross... He gives you a receipt, says that the debt is fully paid. You're free from condemnation. You do not have to earn my favor anymore. You are my son. You're my daughter. You're in the family of God. Colossians 2 and verse 13, And you being dead in your sins, the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's just talking to the Gentiles there. That means you're you're not in, in the covenant people. You're not a Jew. You're so far from me even in that area. But God has, has quickened or, or, or raised you together with Him, with Christ. Look at this, folks. Having forgiven you all trespasses, all of them, the worst night of your life, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. You know what the handwriting of ordinances is? It's a receipt of debts. He blotted out that debt that you had. It was against you, contrary to you. And he took it out of the way. It's not between you, your conscience, it's gone. And he nailed it to his cross. He took all of your sins, he nailed them to the cross. All the ones you're going to commit tomorrow, next week, until the day you die. So, wait, wait. If I believe that, that means I'd sin more. Well, you're probably going to sin according to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But, but when you think about it, you won't want to. Somebody came to John Rice one time and they said, so, so you believe, you, you don't believe that you can be sinless. And with a tear in his eye, he said, oh, I wish I did. I wish I did. You see, a Christian won't be sinless, but they will sin less. They will sin less. And Jesus, having spoiled, the word spoil means to take what belongs to another. And, and here are demon spirits, principalities, powers. And he made a show of them openly, triumphing them over them in it. Jesus conquered the devil at the cross. My salvation is not based on anything that I do. I, I can't, I mean, I've tried to hit this nail from 10,000 places on these two messages on it is finished, tetelestai. Tetelestai, have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior? Have you ever rested in Him? Not confirmation, not baptism, not good things. Good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. Maybe there's a stirring in your heart this morning. You say, you know, I, 
Now, I've never done that. I've always thought I needed to be trust Jesus plus doing good. I need to trust Jesus plus. Never done that. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There will be no boasters in heaven. Two things, and we're going to pray. Number one, if you've never trusted Christ, I'm talking about trusted, rested in Him, do it today. Don't risk your soul. And number two, why aren't you telling this message to people? Religious people are lost. They're lost. And they need to know Jesus died for them and He loves them and He has removed this penalty. Listen, one of the reasons I preach these messages is so you can learn how to preach the gospel and learn these truths. Would you bow your head with me? Thank you for your patience today.